It is, it is good to be back, and I, I just want to make sure I say hi to all the folks that are watching online. Uh, I know Elder Dwayne is out today with COVID, and so we need to keep him in our prayers, but I'm sure he's watching online, so I just want to say hi out there. And uh, my mom is recovering from a surgery, and she's usually online watching us too, so I'll say hi to her too. I hope she's doing well. Um, but it's good to be back. I, I, I miss every time that I, I'm not here. And that's not very often, uh, but I really miss when I am uh, away. But we had an incredible trip. We really did. Uh, some, some really great adventures, um, and, and most of those surround uh, our encounter with a couple of bears, which was, which was pretty fun. We almost got to bring one of those home and put in our freezer. And uh, <clears throat> we invited all those animals to dinner with us, but only one of them accepted. And uh, so we're thankful for that. Uh, it was, it was a really great time. We did have some rain. Angela's prayers were answered in part. And uh, so we're, uh, we'll even be thankful for that because it actually quieted down the forest. So we, we were okay with that. Uh, but now summer is officially over and we're beginning a new ministry season. We talk about ministry seasons here because uh, in between you know, September and June, people kind of camp out at home because of school and things like that. And it's wintertime, so there's not quite as many things to do. And during the summer, people are going hinder and yon and, and doing all these things to, uh, uh, you know, going on vacation and being with family and family reunions and all that. And so we just kind of have seasons. We just look, look at this fall and winter and spring season as really a ministry season where we can really focus in on things that we do as a church. And so we're, we're starting our new ministry season here. And uh, we're going to be starting a new today with a new sermon series called Fulfilled. I, I love Scripture and the amazing truth that the Holy Spirit reveals in Scripture. See, it's amazing how it's written. The, the Holy Spirit moved on the writers as they were carried along in the writing, says Peter. I love, for instance, how the, gospels, the gospel writers had to select the stories and events that they emphasized for their particular audience as a, a representative of what they were trying to reveal about Christ. We sometimes think of the gospels as, you know, a, a, a captain's log where there was maybe some guy that was going around writing everything that Jesus was doing, you know, and, and today he did this, and, you know, it's like a journal or something, and, and that isn't what the case is. The gospels were written after Jesus had already resurrected, gone to heaven, and had been there for 30, maybe even 60 years. And the eyewitnesses were starting to die off, and people said, you know what? We need to have these stories down. We need to preserve them for people that will come after that we don't just tell. So the Gospels were, were written on purpose in that way. But it's amazing how the Holy Spirit weaved together all of it to reveal Christ. To reveal Christ. And that's really what the Holy Spirit does. It, it reveals who Jesus is. Jesus didn't act in secret. He didn't have a secret code and only certain people saw it. But out in the open, he wasn't a mystical experience. He was a real person. He lived this life, the same life that we do. Yet he lived it without sin. But even more, he provided that opportunity for you and me, for all of humanity to be saved. Saved from death, saved from judgment, saved from a hollow, empty life that in the end doesn't have much significance without Jesus. And Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise to redeem humanity. 
Jesus was the fulfillment of that. He, he fulfilled the entire contract, which was known as the Old Covenant. He fulfilled it all. And then, even more, he made it available to, to you and to me. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about how Jesus was that fulfillment and how in doing that, it revealed his glory. His glory. We worship Jesus because of who he is. And the stories in the Gospels show us who he is. They show us his glory. In order for us to really participate in salvation, in order for, for it, salvation to truly be yours, you have to recognize who he truly is. Recognize his glory. And today I want to share a story that reveals the glory of Jesus. And we find them in the book of John. In fact, uh, all of the stories that I'm going to relay in this sermon series are from the book of John because John told these particular stories. He even says at the end of his book, he said, if, if we were to write down everything Jesus did, there would be no end to the books that we could write. But he chose these stories because they revealed some things about Jesus. And I, I do want to say some things uh, about John. The, the book of John was written to people who already believed. Already believed that they might continue in their belief. And unlike the other Gospels, it's unlike the other Gospels in a lot of different ways. It is an eyewitness account because John was there. John was the, the disciple that Jesus loved. And he was right there. And rather than a history or a hagiography, it was actually a theological reflection on the stories of Jesus. It was a theological reflection on Jesus. So John is kind of a special gospel. It's put off all by itself because it is this theological reflection. In, in the book of John, he doesn't just tell us what Jesus did. He tells us what Jesus means. A lot of people suggest that if you're just starting out that you should read the book of John. I, I'm not so sure about that. I think I would recommend Luke, not John. Because John is, is theologically dense. John is the same fellow who wrote the book of Revelation, and it shows. It shows. It's dense with symbol and meaning, and it takes a close and careful reading to draw all out, it all out that he's communicating. And so today, I would, I would invite you to let me be your guide, and let's look at this first miracle that John tells us about. This first miracle that was a sign revealing the glory of Jesus. And we find it in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, there's a whole bunch in this little 11 verses to unpack. And and together we will, but we have to start at the end because it helps make sense of the rest. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, do you think that the glory of Jesus is that he can do cool tricks at weddings? Miraculous, yes. Mystifying in a way, but kind of expected by mom, (laughs) right? Uh, It it helps to understand signs. Signs are not usually things themselves. They usually point to something. Have you noticed? For instance, when you're driving on I-5 and you see a sign, and there's these signs on I-5 sometimes, and they'll they'll point to a thing. It'll say, Mount St. Helens. And you're driving by, and if you look past the sign, you'll see Mount St. Helens. But uh, in fact, If you looked at the sign that said Mount St. Helens, you might think, well, that's kind of a flimsy mountain. It's just like a stick with a placard on it, right? Because the sign is not actually the thing. The the sign points to the thing. The miracle of Jesus is not the deal. It's a sign that points to his glory being revealed. And his glory was not that he was a miracle worker. No, the miracles he did were signs of his glory. His glory was who he was and the salvation that he brought. So in this miracle, as John tells it to us, we will find the glory of Jesus, his salvation. So we begin at the beginning. John starts off with this curious phrase. Remember that the book was written to believers. And how does John start it off? On the third day. If you're reading this, you might be a bit confused if you're reading it chronologically because John had just got done telling three different little stories that start with the phrase, and on the next day. So you'd be reading, and on the next day, and on the next day, and on the next day, and then we have this one story that says, on the third day. So what does John mean? Maybe he was speaking of Tuesday, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. On the third day, Tuesday. Is he talking about a Tuesday? Or could it be that he was alerting his readers to something incredibly significant, something that he wants to frame and highlight? You see, because we as believers, when we hear the words, on the third day, that just makes light bulbs go off, doesn't it? It makes light bulbs go off. You see, the third day is significant. I will rise on the third day. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. This story is a sign that reveals the resurrection glory of Jesus. This story event is a sign pointing to the true glory of Jesus. And John doesn't want you to miss it. So he says, on the third day, and you think resurrection, and then he tells a story. Verse 2 through 4. A wedding took place in Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. You see, in addition to the third day phrase that John uses, 
we find that they are at a wedding. They're at a wedding. When Jesus comes back in his glory, it's spoken of as a wedding. A wedding feast. Jesus is spoken of in Revelation. Same, although later book, as the groom. And the church is the bride. Prepared. And then Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What hour? What hour is he speaking of? Is, that, is the hour for him to start his ministry had not yet come? Too late. He already had disciples. He was already starting his ministry. Uh, what hour? Could it be the hour that he was talking about? This hour. The hour where he is completely revealed as Messiah and as Lord. The hour where he makes way for salvation to the world. <coughs> Excuse me. That's the hour. And then verse 5 through 7, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. His mom believed he was going to do something about the problem of running out of wine and told the servants to do whatever he tells you. But we have to look at the jars. They were the jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Empty jars, but they were not ordinary jars. Empty jars, but not ordinary. They were not empty wineskins. That would have been the most logical thing. If Jesus was refilling the wine, why not have all the empty wineskins brought to Jesus and then he would just bless them and they would, they would magically refill. But these are the ceremonial jars. You see, the Jews understood that you have to wash your hands and your feet or you would bring uncleanness. And it was not just a, a physical thing. It was really a spiritual thing. They believed that being unclean, if they weren't, ritually washing that they were unclean. And so they would do this in, in the commandments that even tells them about certain washings. And I believe that this brought them some spiritual cleansing. They were to be pure. But the jars were empty. You see, what John's telling us is this their religion, their observance, their method for providing purity was empty. It was empty. It wasn't going to work anymore. In fact, it wasn't working at the time. It had become about rules and, and, and regulations and things that you had to do. And they, they had all of these rules and these debates about the rules, but it wasn't purifying the heart. It was cleaning the hands, but it wasn't cleaning the heart. Their jars had become empty. So what does Jesus do? Jesus tells them to fill it up again with water. With water in the jars, purity could be had again, but Jesus did something miraculous in that very moment. He filled, he changed the water into wine. See, where the water purification washed the outside, wine is consumed, it is taken in, and that is purification from the inside out. 
it all changed. In in that moment, John is telling us that Jesus just did something that revealed his glory, that no longer was it going to be about a religious activity that would clean the outside but not change the inside. But in Jesus, we were going to take something in and it was going to purify us from the inside out. And then he tells them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called out the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Isn't it amazing that the servants took it to the master of the banquet And he did not realize where it had come. The scripture says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But the servants knew. The the lowly, the slaves, they recognized where it had come from. Jesus' glory was not going to be revealed by the leader of the Jews. Jesus' glory was not going to be revealed by the religious establishment and aristocracy. It was going to be announced. It wasn't going to be announced by a high priest and officials. In fact, they were the ones who were going to have him crucified. But his glory would be revealed by the slaves and by the lowly. And the salvation he was providing was better than anything that had come before. The, The best for last. In the book of Hebrews, at least in the very few, first few chapters, it can be summed up very succinctly. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than sacrifices. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than a high priest. In fact, he's the best high priest, says the book of Hebrews. Have you fully grasped the sign? You see, this is not an allegory. John did not write an allegory. This actually happened. Jesus actually did this. But it was not about the event. It was was pointing to something. It was a sign that Jesus did not to point at the thing that he did, but to point at something that was coming, something that was so much greater. It was to point at his glory. So much bigger. For them, it was pointing to something that hadn't happened yet. Which is probably why they hadn't, didn't recognize it. But as John tells it, in hindsight, we look back and we see the sign. You see, for us, it's pointing to something that has, something that we can have. This is a sign for us. And so when we read it, we see on the third day. I'm here to proclaim to you today that Jesus was crucified and he rose again on the third day. And that changes everything. It changes everything. And that's the frame through which everything in our lives has to be understood. We have to recognize that our jars are empty. Our jars are empty. 
Judaism was empty. It had become about cleaning the outside. It had become a religion, not a relationship, a ritual, but no heart. It was empty and could not provide the purification they needed. But that's true of us too. Our jars are empty. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough right things. You can live the most moral life. You can do way more right things than you do wrong things, and it won't matter. Our jars are empty. Ultimately, your jar is empty. Do you sense it? Do you realize it? Do you not fully understand that you, can, you can't affect or accomplish your own salvation? You need Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can provide what you need. Did you ever wonder why he had the jars filled and not just filled, but filled to the very brim? I mean, why not just create wine in the jars? Why, why the two-step process? You know, Jesus was the only one who was able to completely and perfectly fulfill the old covenant. Covenant. He, he lived his whole life without sin. He never broke it. He completely fulfilled that purification all the way to the brim. He did it all. And because it was filled all the way to the brim, when he changed it to wine, it had the effect. See, having fulfilled it, he radically changed it, turning the water of ritualistic purification, a process that took place on the outside but never actually cleaned the inside to be replaced it with wine, which he explains later is the wine of the new covenant, the new agreement, the refinance, his blood spilled, poured out for my sins. And not only that, the way in which we now have access to salvation. They didn't take the water that had been turned into wine and wash their hands and feet with it, right? They took it in forever, extraordinarily, radically changing the very way that we can be purified and find salvation. See, when Jesus turned the water into wine, he changed the way that they were to seek forgiveness, that they were to find salvation. He changed it. They took it in. And it's only through Jesus Christ, Christ alone. Only he could do that. Only he could have had it filled to the brim. Only he could change it into wine. And then we have the humble, quiet words from the very first believer, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who simply says this, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. She said it to the servants who then served the wine, knowing where it came from. Servants who would have seen the miracle. Servants who knew what the miracle was. Will you listen to that today? The water into wine was not a neat party trick that showed Jesus had the power to do miracles. It was a sign. His glory being revealed. His true nature, not just as a miracle worker, but as a savior, a sign that he had the authority to come and to change the whole way they looked at purification and the process of being pure before God and in relationship with Him. Not just a miracle worker, but a Savior. 
And it's a sign for you today. Your jars are empty. Will you recognize your need for a Savior? Will you humble yourself and pour your heart out to God and say, I need you. I can't save myself. Nothing I can do will save me. My jars are empty. Will you trust him? the one who was able to fulfill it and then having done that to provide the way through his blood, a way of salvation. Will you do what he says? Will you repent of the things you've done wrong? Will you give him your life and follow him, make him Lord and commander of your life? The amazing thing about the water turned to wine is what John was telling us about the glory of Jesus and what he was doing to provide salvation for us. And that's what we need to listen to. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to pay attention to. We need to recognize our jar is empty. We need to recognize that Jesus is the only one who can save us. And we need to recognize that we have to do exactly what he says. I want to encourage you today, if you're a person who hasn't done that, to make that commitment to Jesus Christ. To make that commitment and say, I acknowledge my jars are empty. Make that commitment and say, Jesus, you're the only one who can save me. Make that commitment, Jesus, I will do what you say. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the eyewitnesses who were there, who saw what Jesus did, who knew what he was doing, who was doing so much more than just helping a friend at a wedding. And God, I just pray that we all would acknowledge your glory, Jesus. We would acknowledge that you're the only way to salvation. We would acknowledge that our jars are empty. I can't be good enough. I can't do enough right things. It doesn't matter what my parents are. It's only in you. And God, I pray that we would ultimately do what those early believers did, and that is follow and do everything you tell us to do. Thank you, Jesus, for changing the water into wine so that we can be purified from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.